invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Our passage this morning comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for the opportunity to come together again in this place to worship you, to learn to be more like you and to follow you more closely. We thank you for Pastor Ryan and what he's prepared to share with us this morning. We pray for the willingness to accept the truth of your word and the faithfulness to follow wherever it leads, keeping our eyes on Jesus, our perfect example, no matter what the cost. In his name we pray, amen. Do you ever think about the choices or decisions that led you to where you are today? Choices of college or no college, of who to marry, of where to live, whether to be close to family or to move far away from them. Or about the choices you didn't make that could have taken you elsewhere. The options not chosen. Now as those who believe in the sovereign hand of God over our lives, we trust that where he has us now is where he wants us now. But nonetheless, we make choices. We make decisions that do affect things. A simple example of this is that I am a Dallas Cowboys fan. I was born into it, you might say. So maybe the original choice wasn't made by me, but year after year, I suffer through keeping that choice. They are my team. They are the greatest team. And although we haven't won a Super Bowl in almost 30 years, this is the year it will happen. That's right. And that choice I make to root for the Cowboys has ramifications. I have to hear about every loss from some of you as you send me such nice text messages. Sometimes I wonder about choosing another team, but alas, it hasn't happened. But while I'm sharing this much, I'll keep going down this road. I am a dreamer. I like excitement and adventure, and sometimes I can't shut my mind off from thinking about what is to come. So my wife, my lovely wife, who likes stability, I might add, has often had to put up with me walking in and saying, I think we should move to Australia. I heard that there's a church that needs a pastor there. Or other friends have told me about churches that need to be planted in the Middle East. Maybe we should pray about that. Or, babe, why don't we just sell our house, live off the little bit of equity, and move overseas so I can do more school? Trust me, that's her favorite. (laughs) She keeps me grounded. Nonetheless, I sometimes think what might have been if I had done things differently. And then the Holy Spirit gently reminds me that God is in control, and day-by-day faithfulness is more important than any plans I might dream up. And so as we turn from Judges chapter 7 into chapter 8 today, we are left in a way asking that same question. What could have been, what might have been with Gideon? Because in chapter 6, if you remember, Gideon is called by God. He is this mighty warrior that the angel addresses him as such. And he's called by God to deliver God's people. So he tears down the altar of Baal as a sign of trusting in Yahweh. And then last week, Jeff showed us from chapter 7 how God through Gideon and a few hundred men rout the Midianites and deliver God's people from their oppressive rule. Saving faith, as Jeff said last week, is always tested. 
Gideon experienced that, and you and I experienced that as well. But then comes chapter 8, and our question this morning of what could have been. And we're left asking that question, what could have been, because in many ways, the tension throughout Scripture is a question of who. Who will be the one to crush the serpent's head from Genesis 3? Who will be the better Adam? And so as we read through the Scriptures, that question of who is in the back of our minds, just like it was in the back of the Israelites' minds. Is it Noah? No, he definitely sinned. Abraham? Moses? Joshua? Now Gideon? Let me spoil the movie for you. It's not Gideon. But as we'll see from chapter 8, what could have been is promising. But this last season of Gideon's life is not what you hope to see. It's not how you hope to finish. And we must learn from this in our Christian walk. Because the old saying is true of life, and it's true here, and it's true of the Christian faith in general. It's not how you start, but it's how you finish. So our main point this morning from Judges 8 is as follows. To finish well, we must continually look to the God of our salvation. To finish well, we must continually look to the God of our salvation. When we look to something or to someone else, or we fail in our continuously looking to Him, we become lazy with our discipline, we end up not finishing well. Now in saying this, again, let me provide one more qualifier, that just as our salvation is from God, and so is our sanctification from God, we are His from beginning to the end. Nonetheless, we are still held responsible for the things we do. And our actions and our choices and our decisions have consequences. Gideon, as Hebrews 11 tells us, was a man of faith. But here in this chapter, we must learn from his failings. Learn from the negative. So three scenes from the chapter that help us to do this. If you're taking notes, there's an outline provided in the bulletin. First is division. We see this in verses 1 to 17. Next is downfall, roughly in verses 18 to 27. And then last is death. Verses 28 to 35, division, downfall, and death. At the end of each scene, I hope to provide some pointed application for today. First is division. Look with me at the end of Judges 7. Let me summarize it for us. Gideon and the men have, if you remember from last week, routed the Midianites, and they're seeking to finish off the job. They're chasing down the princes. And it's clear that God's hand was upon them throughout chapter 7 as only 300 were allowed to fight in order that, not that those men might get the glory, but that God might get the glory. So then, as they're pursuing these princes, they're exhausted, and they cry out to the tribe of Ephraim to come and help them and to intercept the Midianites, which they do. So they kill, the Ephraim kills the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and brings them to Gideon, except they're mad. They're really mad. They didn't get to be a part of the original gang. They feel left out. And so the division starts. If I could summarize chapter 6 through 8, it might be helpful to think of it like this. In chapter 6, Gideon has a fight against Baal. In chapter 7, the fight is against Midian. And now in chapter 8, the fight is within Israel itself. Look with me at chapter 8, starting in verse 1. The men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us, not calling us out when you went to fight against the Midianites? And they argued with him violently. So he said to them, What have I done now compared to you? Is not the gleaning of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God handed over to you Oreb and Zeb, the two princes of Midian. What was I able to do compared to you? When he said this, their anger against him subsided. 
Ephraim is a bit of a prima donna here. We all know someone who's like this. Nonetheless, their honor is slighted. They didn't get called out. They didn't get consulted on what to do. And here we see Gideon's diplomacy as a leader on full display. So in verse 2, he quotes uh, a sort of proverb in the ancient Near East, and he shows humility as a leader. He says, Is not the gleaning of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? If you remember, Gideon comes from the clan of Abiezer. So in effect, he's saying the vintage of Abiezer is insignificant compared to the gleaning of Ephraim. Maybe you're not a wine connoisseur. In even more straightforward terms, he's saying the best the Abiezerites can produce is less than the scraps off the Ephraimites' table. And then Gideon just makes a straightforward observation. Look, you got to kill Oreb and Zeb. What more honor could you want? And you know what? It works. Gideon could have said a lot of other things, but the humility shown here is something to be commended. But then right away, the division amongst Israel continues. Look with me at verse 4. Gideon and the 300 men came to the Jordan and crossed it. They were exhausted, but still in pursuit. He said to the men of Sukkoth, Please give some loaves of bread to the troops under my command, because they are exhausted, for I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the princes of Sukkoth said, or asked, Are Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hands that we should give bread to your army? Gideon replied, Very well. When the Lord has handed Zeba and Zalmunna over to me, I will tear your flesh with thorns and briars from the wilderness. He went from there to Penuel and asked the same thing of them. The men of Penuel answered just as the men of Sukkoth had answered. He also told the men of Penuel, when I return safely, I will tear down this tower. So Gideon goes, let me summarize the next few, goes and captures the king and the kings and he returns to Sukkoth, first getting the names of the elders of that town, the ones who said no to him. Look with me at verse 15. Then he went to the men of Sukkoth and said, here are Zeba and Zamuna. You taunted me about them, saying, Are Zeba and Zamuna now in your power that we should give bread to your exhausted men? So he took the elders of the city, and he took some thorns and briars from the wilderness, and he disciplined the men of Sukkoth with them. He also tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. The division here continues. As men of Sukkoth and Penuel, cities belonging to Israel, the tribes of Israel, resist efforts to aid Gideon out of fear of retribution, fear of retaliation. Well, what if he doesn't win? What if they help and then Zeba and Zalmunna come back and punish, it, punish them? But the irony is that it was Gideon, the judge of their country, who comes back to punish them. Some things to note here real quick. This is the first time that elders are mentioned in the book of Judges. And the cities were spread out, the towns were spread out, and the elders were providing governance for those individual cities. And what does he do to these older, respected men? He whips them with thorns and briars. He shames them in front of their clan, in front of their town. And even worse, he comes to Penuel, and he not only destroys the tower like he said he would, but he kills all the men of the city. Now, we have no idea if they were saying worse things or not, or even boasting in the strength of their tower, but this is his own kinsman. His own people. What is happening here? The insidious nature of sin is reaping dire consequences amongst God's people. You see, previously, Gideon was fighting with the Lord. He was fighting for the Lord. But this, this is something else. Even if you read that in-between section and how he captures or kills and then captured uh, Zeba and Zalmunna, it shows that things have gotten personal. This is no longer for Yahweh's glory, but in a way, it's for Gideon's glory. He will not be slighted. 
He will not show forgiveness to these elders who clearly messed up. He will have his vengeance. Multiple things can be true simultaneously here. The elders should have sided with and helped Gideon and his men. They were wrong for not doing that. And Gideon should have forgiven their wrongdoing. The elders didn't lead the people well, and when they sided with Israel's enemies, they were treated as Israel's enemies. In the same vein, Gideon's version of justice was just too much. It only deepens the division that's happening within Israel. So what can we learn from this? Two things. Never be afraid of the what if. Never be afraid of the what if. What do I mean by this? The elders in these towns were concerned about possible retaliation. Well, what if you don't capture them, Gideon? Or what if they come back here and we supported you? But what is right is right. And what is wrong is wrong. They have, should have supported Gideon and his men. And if I can be so frank, it was stupid and wrong for them not to. Clearly, Yahweh was giving them support and victory. And as ironically, as they sought to avoid the wrath of Midian, they received the wrath of Gideon. So don't be afraid of the what if. In your Christian walk, in your discipleship, in the here and now, God through his word and through his natural law, through our conscience and through his Holy Spirit, gives us clear indication of what we are to do and not to do. And as a Christian, you should never fear the reprisal or the punishment that comes from following God, ever. Sometimes we can so crave safety and security like these elders, so much so that we venture into faithlessness. We are liked at work. We're liked by our neighbors. Isn't it easier not to speak up in the midst of what is wrong? We worry about what might happen to us if we evangelize, if we even talk about Jesus at work, if we boldly state that we are a Christian and that sin is actually sin. We fear the punishment of man more than we fear God in those instances. This is what the great Christian martyrs singing hymns of praise as they were slain understood as they were burned at the stake. Why should they fear those who can only kill the body? We are called to faithfulness to God and His Word. So hear me here clearly. We don't go out seeking to be punished or to be fired or to be maligned as a Christian. That's not the goal at all. But if it's between that and siding against the things of God, especially in this month that has been co-opted by the culture to celebrate sin, may it never be so that we were afraid of the what if. I recently taught on Daniel chapter 3 to the students. My favorite Old Testament narrative as I was growing up, the fiery furnace of Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And I cannot think of a better example of not being scared of the what if. I told the students then that if everyone else is bowing down to the idols of this world, I want you to be the few who are still standing, refusing to do so. Those three young men were not scared of the what if. In fact, the what if came true. But notice their bold statement in the face of the mightiest king in the world at that time. Daniel chapter 3. They tell him, O king, if the God we serve exists then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Christian faithfulness means, in part, that you fear God more than you fear men. And you fear what they can do to you. Come what may, you count the cost and you follow him. This world will hate you, Jesus told his disciples. Because it hated him. 
So whether it's shame or scorn or pity or a lost job or even jail one day, those who know and love God never fear the what if because they know who they ultimately belong to. Their fear of God is greater than their fear of anything else. Second application point, sometimes the people of God can be a great disappointment. This is your opportunity to say amen. Sometimes the people of God can be a great disappointment. There you go. You're listening. If you've been in the church for any time, then you know this. And if you are a new believer and you're here and you're wondering what this Christianity thing is all about, then let me tell you before I explain this statement. We are collectively in here a people who have trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for our salvation. We recognize that we have sinned. We have missed God's standard for us completely. We have sinned before God and we deserve His rightful punishment. That is hell. We deserve that completely. And the lie of Satan today is that in and of ourselves we are good enough. The common thought today is that if I just do enough good works, just a little bit more good than bad, then I'll be okay. I'll go to heaven. The Christian doesn't believe that. This is not what God through his word has revealed to us. It's not why his son had to come and die for us. Our good works do nothing to change our standing before God in terms of salvation. Now, the good news that these scriptures tell us is that God did not leave us to ourselves. He didn't leave us to keep deceiving ourselves, but that he is graciously redeeming sinners even today because of the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, so that all who place their faith in him can be forgiven, can have eternal life with God, and can delight in knowing God and living for him. So the amazing thing about the gospel, about this good news that I'm describing, is that it is a gift to be received, not earned. It is the greatest news and the greatest reality that anyone can ever know and experience. And so that is why we come together as Christ's church in here this morning. And so in light of that, what in the world do I mean that the people of God can be a great disappointment? Well, these elders of the city were a part of Israel. They were a part of the people of God. And the truth about the people of God then and now is that we disappoint one another. We make mistakes. We fall short. We sin against one another in word and in thought and in deed. It is true that we are saved, yet we are still working out our sanctification. We are still growing in godliness, still seeking to be conformed to the image of Christ. So we must not allow those moments of disappointment to disillusion us in the faith. Part of Christian maturity is understanding that we expect that other sinners will let us down. And we learn and grow in what it means to practice forgiveness, to seek repentance, to seek out the brother or sister that has sinned against us, and to practice Matthew 18. More often than not, though, the people of God will be with you there through thick and thin. They will be encouraging you and motivating you in your walk with God, seeking to build you up and also hold you accountable. But at times, they will disappoint you. Don't allow that to be a reason that you turn from God or you turn from the church but rather understand what it means that we live in this in-between and resolve to not let those disappointments fester into greater things. Scene number two, downfall. First we saw the division that began to creep into Israel, and now we see the downfall. After killing Zeba and Zalmunna, Judges chapter 8, starting in verse 22. Then the Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us. You as well as your sons and your grandsons, for you delivered us from the power of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Then he said to them, let me make a request of you, though. Everyone give me an earring from his plunder. 
Now the enemy had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. They said, we agree to give them. So they spread out a cloak and everyone threw an earring from his plunder on it. The weight of the gold earrings he requested was 43 pounds of gold. In addition to the crescent ornaments and ear pendants, the purple garments of the kings of Midian and the chains on the necks of their camels. Gideon made an ephod from all this and put it in Ophrah, his hometown. Then all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his household. As we said earlier with the story of Gideon, we're left wondering what could have been. Even with the punishing of the elders, there's still hope. There's still hope. Yet here, the downfall is apparent. Look back at verse 23. Israel wants to make him king and wants his descendants to be kings. They are in effect saying, assume the authority that you are entitled to. Look at all that you've done, Gideon. You must be king. You slayed the other kings. You are the king slayer. Become our king. Start a dynasty. Well, at least most of Israel was saying that. The elders of Sukkoth were probably too timid and the men of Penuel were all dead. But the rest, the rest want him as king. But he says, no, the Lord will rule over you. And at this point, we're thinking, yes, good job, Gideon. Don't say anything else. Isn't it always human nature to not know when to stop? To say something good, then sour it with the next words out of our mouth. I'm particularly calling out myself here. Gideon says no, and then there's more. He requests an earring from the plunder. And from these earrings, the gold is melted, and he makes an ephod, which is a special breastplate that the priests would have worn in the tabernacle. Two ways to look at this. I want to present both. Maybe he was seeking to point to God by making the breastplate of a priest. Maybe he was trying to remind the people of the priests in the tabernacle and how they should ultimately look to Yahweh. He was hoping to serve as God's spokesperson, as a judge, to continue to hear from the Lord and administer justice. It was simply Israel that loved the ephod with a godless passion. A few think that. I'm not so sure. I think this ephod served as an idol. In many ways, from taking spoil from Israel to setting up shop in his hometown with the ephod to taking the crescent ornaments of Zeba and Zalmunna, Gideon was setting himself up as a king of sorts, even though he didn't want the specific title. He said no in word, but his actions were showing something else. Even what he comes to name his son, which we're going to see, Abimelech or Abimelech, my, means my dad is king. I think there is more going on here than meets the eye. But the writer of scripture right away says that the ephod was set up. I think the writer is interpreting it for us. The ephod was set up and then Israel right away prostituted themselves before it. So think about this. From tearing down the altar of Baal in chapter 6 to now in some way residing over a people who are once again prostituting themselves before an idol. This is a downfall of epic proportions. Because notice that last verse. It became a snare for both Gideon and his household. Two things to be mindful of here. First is this, guard against spiritual pride. Guard against spiritual pride. Gideon was used by God. Clearly a man of faith, as Hebrews 11 tells us. Yet in this downfall, we see some of his pride coming through. Not wanting to be king, but subtly acting as a king. Allowing idolatry in his hometown to affect his family. You see, apart from maybe Samson, who we're going to come to see, none of the judges were given as much by Yahweh. Yet here, this is the first time idolatry is sponsored by the leader of the nation and his family. He was used mightily by God. Yet through the division with Sukkoth and Penuel and now this ephod, he did not remain humble, did not keep giving Yahweh the credit. Pride creeps in. 
One writer commenting on this says, It is ever our danger that after being used of God in some way, we mouth humility but practice pride. We mouth humility but practice pride. All of us struggle in various ways with how, to, uh, how we live, how uh, our practice to match our theology, how we make those two go together. What we know to be true, to be actually lived out and applied in our lives. We struggle with that disconnect as sin seeks to warp our affections and our devotion to God all the time. We might know occasions of the Spirit's power, but often we lack the Spirit's wisdom. So it is all the more imperative then that we guard against spirit pride. As we mature in the Christian walk, as we see God move in our lives and in our church, as we are even used ourselves by God in the lives of others, let us remember, as Philippians 2.13 says, that for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. He is the one at work and the one who deserves the glory in anything that we accomplish. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is Paul's question to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 4. He simply asked this, what do you have that you did not receive? If you know about yourself that you struggle with pride, that is a great verse to meditate on. What do you have that you did not receive? The Corinthian church is puffed up with spiritual pride. They are bragging in ways about their spiritual gifts. They are abusing their spiritual gifts. And that question so swiftly removes any pride from the equation. What do you have that you didn't receive? Why can you be prideful at the things that God is doing through you, knowing that it is at his prerogative that he chooses to do so? He uses broken vessels for his purposes. Nothing in us should cause us to be spiritually prideful. Rather, as we grow in grace and we mature in our understanding of the gospel, we mature in our understanding of the depravity of sin, if anything, those realities drive us to our knees all the more in humble praise to God that he would condescend to save and redeem a sinner like me. We must guard against it, for it only leads to more downfall. Application point number two, sometimes the servants of God can be a great disappointment. There you go. Sometimes the servants of God can be a great disappointment. I said earlier that God's people can be a great disappointment, but I also want to be specific in saying so can the leaders that God uses. I recognize that there are some in here who have been hurt in various ways by leaders in the church, by pastors as well. They have disappointed you or possibly even worse. Gideon here in Judges 8 is the leader of Israel, and in many ways he is a disappointment to those who are looking to him. So in light of this, we must recognize a few things. James says that not all should become teachers because you know that you will be judged with a greater strictness. Pastor elders are held to a higher standard in Scripture. In the same vein, they are to be above reproach, to model godliness for God's people. Yet, they, we, are still fallen, still being sanctified ourselves, still fighting the sinful flesh. So in light of that, it is imperative that you know what to expect from your leaders within the church, what the qualifications are and how they should be leading You should know 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. You should expect that from your leaders. That is a good and godly thing for you to do and to know. But second, as I said, leaders in the church at some point will disappoint you. And I'm by no means excusing the sins or the errors of the leaders of God's people. Hear me here clearly. But it should both temper our expectations and cause us to look past the leaders to the one true shepherd of God's elect, to the one in whom there is no sin, who never disappoints, and to whom no charges can be brought against. Jesus Christ our Lord. 
He alone is the one who can carry our burdens, and He alone is the one who will never disappoint. So please, once more, hear me. I'm not excusing the sins of those leading the church. At our previous church, in my ordination service, I remember my pastor saying, Ryan, there is no sin that God can't forgive, but there are sins that will disqualify you from ministry. Sin has consequences. And when pastor elders or leaders in the church sin, it can have lasting effects. Look to Christ. Keep looking to Him. Only put your hope in Him. No one else. All the Israelites here were crying out for Gideon to be their king. All the while, they should have been looking past Gideon to the Lord, Yahweh, their true king. Our last scene from Gideon's life, number three, death. Division, downfall, and death. I think physical death here, yes, we're going to see that with Gideon. But also, I, I think that there's spiritual death too. Look with me at verse 28. So Midian was subdued before the Israelites, and they were no longer a threat. The land had peace for 40 years during the days of Gideon. Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, son of Joash, went back to live at his house. Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, since he had many wives. His concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. Then Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abiezerites. When Gideon died, the Israelites turned and prostituted themselves by worshiping the Baals and made Baal Berit their god. The Israelites did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hand of the enemies around them. They did not show kindness to the house of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, for all the good he had done for Israel. Our main point this morning is that to finish well, we must continually look to the God of our salvation. And I want us to feel this tension with Gideon. I want us to feel it, because as I've said twice before, the author of Hebrews recounts him as a man of faith. He clearly had faith, but in the midst of this are failures that we need to see. This last section of the chapter is really serving to round out and summarize the end of Gideon's life. Just a couple things to note. Notice in verse 28 that the land had peace for 40 years. This is the last time that such a claim will be made in Judges. The land and therefore Israel will no longer recover its rest. Israel forfeits this. And rather than just seeing this as a repeating cycle like this, we must realize that what is happening, this is a rapid downward spiral, even more so throughout the rest of the book, as sin is abounding more and more, and Israel is reaping the consequences. And then the text says that Gideon had many wives, contrary to God's intent, God's law. And not only wives, but a concubine living in another city that he would go and visit for his pleasure. And it's this concubine who gives him another son and who he aptly names Abimelech. Abimelech, my father, is king. Wait until you hear about him next week. And then Gideon dies. The land had peace, and he dies. And like a glass window being shattered, the peace will be gone. Look again at verse 33. When Gideon died, the Israelites turned and prostituted themselves by worshiping the Baals and made Baal berit their god. They go from worshiping Yahweh to worshiping the ephod, to worshiping Baal. It's sad. At this point, things just keep getting worse. The down, downward spiral of sin and idolatry only continues. So in closing, two things to be mindful of from this scene of death. First is this. Never take sin lightly. Never take sin lightly. At this point in Judges, I don't even think we're halfway yet, it can be easy to not be surprised by sin anymore. 
we grow a bit callous to reading about it, and we just assume, well, that's how it's supposed to be. Israel is just always sinful. But it's not. The book of Judges is shocking, and in many ways it's meant to shock us, to wake us from our stupor, and to see that this is not how things are supposed to be. This is not what Genesis 1 and 2 describes. This is something tragically different. They are not supposed to be forsaking the God who saves and redeems them. They are not supposed to be turning away from Yahweh time and time again, but they do. As I said a few weeks ago, they play the role of the harlot and they give themselves to another. But what I want us to see here is that sin deceives. It is insidious. It makes us think it's just one small thing, just a, a little lie here, just a quick look at that website there, just a quick break while I should be working, just that little word about someone else that we don't really see that as gossip. Even look here at Gideon. Just a few earrings collected, just a golden ephod there, and the whole country is turned away from God. When you think lightly of sin, you will think lightly of God. When you think lightly of sin, you will think lightly of God. Why would you need Jesus to die for you if your sins aren't that bad? Friends, the reality of the scriptures is that sin is serious. It is deathly serious. It's not to be taken lightly. So if you find yourself, even now, thinking that you're only doing something small on the side, nobody really sees it, only sinning a little here and there when no one's watching, you are deceived more than you know. You are, I think, in my understanding of Hebrews 6, holding Christ up for contempt, bringing reproach and shame upon his name, taking sin lightly is a grave mistake. It is, as C.S. Lewis famously wrote in the screw tape letters, it does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards will do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope. Soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Notice there about the safe road to hell. It is the one where there is not a warning. There is not a signpost. It is the one where sin is taken lightly. So here is your warning. My friend, stop. Stop what you're doing. Stop trying to hide it. You know that you are sinning against the Lord. Do not take sin lightly. Do not play with it. It will tear your life apart and it will tear your family apart. Yes, God through Christ will forgive you, but the consequences are real. They are very real. And those who have truly experienced the grace of God, the freedom of Christ, will come to hate all the more the sin that so easily entangles them. So my prayer for us as a church Christ community is that we would be a church that prays often that the Holy Spirit would show us areas of sin in our lives and that we would, by God's grace, turn from those sins. Even more, a part of our membership covenant is that we would pray for one another, seek to hold one another accountable. One of the best things that you can do for your Christian walk and maturity is to invite others into your life, warts and all, we all have them, and allow some accountability into your life. Don't hide things and don't take sin lightly. Second, pursue a godly legacy. Pursue a godly legacy. In this time between two worlds, between the first coming of Christ, where the kingdom has been inaugurated, and his second and final coming, death is real. More often than not, we want to push it away. We don't want to think about the impending reality of death. We want to have it at the back of our minds rather than at the forefront. One of my favorite books of the Bible is Ecclesiastes, and when you read that book, it's hard to get away from the reality of death. He likes to remind you of it. And I taught through it a couple years ago, and one of my main points was this, you are going to die one day. 
Apart from Christ returning, that is 100% in your future. Therefore, allow that coming reality to shape how you live today. That's in part the message of Ecclesiastes. But death is coming. And with the death of Gideon here, there are some things that we should consider. This past week, my family and I were out of town. We were in Tulsa, where I partially grew up, and then Springfield, Missouri, for my wife's brother's wedding. And while in Tulsa, we visited with my grandma. She's my last remaining grandparent, and I'll be honest, it was hard. She's only 83, but she has intense pain in her knees and in her back. And it's causing her to hunch over, and the pain medication doesn't really do much for her, and she is burdened by it. You can see it both physically and spiritually. And with tears in her eyes, she's asking me to pray for her, and so I do. And we visit as we can. We couldn't really visit that much before she would have to go and lay down again. And while we're visiting, right next to her, she's towards the end of her life, you have my four young children just starting theirs, not understanding any of that. Right next to her, playing at the table we're eating at, looking at everything, looking at the pictures in her house of a younger dad who used to have hair. And I was struck as I was thinking about the end of life and then the death that we see in this passage. Notice once more the ending of chapter 8. Verse 34, the Israelites did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hand of the enemies around them. They did not show kindness to the house of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, for all the good that he had done for Israel. They did not remember God, and in essence, they did not remember Gideon because they did not show kindness to his house. So in light of this passage, in light of my grandmother's health, I couldn't help but to think about what it means to be remembered, what it means to leave a legacy. My kids, other than maybe Jed, will have next to no memories of their great-grandma. My great-grandchildren will have little to no memory of me, most likely. We are here, and we are gone. And this should humble us all in different ways, but also cause us to think about the legacy that we want to leave. So often, we can be so distracted by the pursuits of this world, we don't realize the type of legacy that we are already leaving. We don't realize that our time and our attention can so easily be spent on other things rather than on the main and the important things. Husbands, you are called to lovingly lead your wives, looking to Christ as your example. Leave a legacy of that. Wives, you are called to lovingly submit and respect your husbands. Leave a godly legacy of that. Fathers and mothers, leave a legacy of discipling your children, of talking to them about the things of God, of modeling a love for God for yourself so that they not only hear it, but they see it in your day-to-day life. Those who are single here, what type of legacy are you leaving in the church, in your workplace? Those of you who are retired, are you wasting those years? Are you leaving a legacy of godliness in them? Leave a legacy, unlike Israel did here, of remembering God and honoring him throughout your time on this earth for as long as God gives you breath in your lungs. Our great-grandchildren might not remember us, but our kids will, our neighbors will, our other family members will, our co-workers will pursue a godly legacy. The legacy that I hope to leave in ministry is what the late German pastor Nicholas Zinzendorf said, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. And in many ways, that's true for every Christian seeking to be faithful to the Great Commission. Preach the gospel, disciple others, leave that legacy of faithfulness, die, and be forgotten after another generation passes. There's your encouraging and uplifting sermon for the day. (laughs) But in reality, the Christian is never forgotten. Part of the great hope that we have 
in terms of our salvation is that while we might be forgotten here on earth, we are not forgotten where it truly counts. I said earlier that the theme underlying the scriptures is who will be the one, particularly the Old Testament. Who will be the one? Who will crush the serpent's head? And while Gideon didn't crush the head, he was meant, po- he was meant to point forward to one who would, Jesus Christ through whom all the promises of God are yes and amen, and through whom our names are written and remembered in the Lamb's book of life. In him we have a lasting legacy. Look to him. So in light of the division and the downfall and the death that we see in Judges chapter 8, to finish well, we must continually look to the God of our salvation, who has supplied our salvation and blessed us with every spiritual blessing in his Son, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we as your people praise you as the God of heaven and earth. We thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, but through your word, through creation, and most noticeably through your son, Jesus Christ, you have revealed to us how we might be saved, how we might be reconciled to you. Father, we recognize that Judges 8 is pointing forward past itself. We are to learn these things, and I pray that we do from the division, the downfall, and the death that we see, but we are to be looking to the one true and great judge, the one who will never disappoint, and the one who is coming again. So I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would encourage us where we need it and convict us as well, and let us never be a people that seeks to hide sin. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen.